Brewery DB and Good Beer Matters have partnered to share the stories of craft and culture found in every glass. Brewery DB is the largest curated source of brewery knowledge and serves to connect craft beer lovers like yourself to your next brewery experience. Expand your knowledge on thousands of brews and create personalized brewery routes in your own neighborhood and nationwide. Join the waitlist on brewerydb.com today and be the first to know when new features go live. Check out the newest beta version of BreweryDB and get a taste for what's to come. My name is Jeremy, and this is Good Beer Matters. You know, that moment where you just blow someone's mind because that beer pairs so well with it, you know? To drive the industry forward, it needs to be part of a larger conversation. Well, my goal with Beerology has always been to push the industry forward. I mean, that's gonna, you know, increase sales, it's gonna increase tips, it's gonna make everyone happy. Beerology is a word that simply means the study of all things beer. It's also a book written by my next guest who has made it her life's work to educate and improve the beer industry. Together, we explore beer knowledge and advanced beer pairing techniques, all in the name of experiencing better beer. I've studied, traveled, and tasted my way through some of the best beer the world has to offer. Over the past few years, I've also spoken to beer industry leaders from around the globe, and one thing is certain, the art, the science, and the culture of beer has more of a profound effect on us than we realize. There's a story of craft and culture found in every glass, and I intend to get to the bottom of it. These are the stories of us, of great food and the beer that brings it all together. I hope you enjoy episode 94 of Good Beer Matters with beerologist and master Cicerone, Mirela Amato. next guest, uh, most of you have heard of her. Uh, she is one of the, as of this recording, 19 Master Cicerones in the world. And she just put out a, a uh, online course to take your beer and food pairing to the next level. Uh, but of course, most of you know her from her book. She is the beer, beerologist, Mirela Amato. Thank you so much for coming on to the uh, Good Beer Matters podcast. That's my pleasure, Jeremy. Uh, and and I have to say, I love. Um, I I know that you are uh, either bilingual or multilingual, but um, I, I kind of have this. I have this little uh, pet peeve of mine that if I'm pronouncing a word from a different culture, like in my case, you know, Spanish, I try to pronounce it. Uh, in, in a Spanish pronunciation, because that's a Spanish word. That's the proper way to pronounce it. Um, you know, I, I don't call um, them tacos in uh, in American uh, Spanglish. But whenever I've heard you pronounce your name on video or anything else, you pronounce it in a very, um, a very. I'm going to just use the word elegant way. How do you pronounce your name? It's Mirella Amato. It's Italian. Yeah, see, it's and, a very and, Italian way. <laughs> and, 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 and you know, it's funny because I've heard you speak uh, French, but your name is Italian. But you don't say I'm Mirella Amato. It, it. I just love the way you pronounce it because it pays homage to the culture uh, and the language, and um, and and frankly, that kind of ties into beer. I mean, beer comes from the culture, but I just love that you do that. I, I just, I just yeah, want I to do stick speak that in Italian there. Italian as well, actually. So, how um, many languages do you speak? English, French, Italian. 
fluently English, French, and Italian. I have a functional German, um, although it's a, the vocabulary-wise, it's a little bit rusty right now. But if I'm in Germany, I, I can certainly understand what people are saying, and I can get by. And uh, also, I can understand um, and uh, with a couple of beers of me also speak Neapolitan, which is uh, in theory, a dialect of Italian, but but really, a, it's a separate language. Separate language. All right. So, is that just the benefit of of uh, being or living in uh, Canada or being Canadian, or is that a, just being a world traveler? Well, I am French Canadian, and my father was born in Italy, so I had the extremely good fortune of you know being trilingual by the time I was you know three three or four years old. So, you know, that was not really my doing. And uh, the German came later in high school. I had the option to study either German or Spanish. And I mean, I can't speak Spanish, but I can absolutely understand it as with, you know, between the French and the Italian, there are many languages, that, uh, you know, quite familiar with and German seemed like a really exciting challenge. So uh, I took that up and it works out, you know, very nicely in a beer context. I was just going to say uh, that. <laughs> you know, I, I have all, you know, languages to get by in most of the, uh, the, the major beer regions. So. Well, that's perfect. Uh, growing up in well, growing up in Southern California, I was definitely exposed to Spanish, um, uh, which is to say that uh, I speak amazing Spanish for a, a kindergartner. So, um, uh, if I, so, if I were in a kindergarten class speaking Spanish, then I, I would dominate. But um, but that being said, <laughs> I, I become uh, vastly more fluent when I'm drinking, um, or so so I think. Um, but other than that, um, w let's kick things off. Um, you tell us a little bit about your uh, background as it pertains to beer. I mean, um, anyone who's in the beer industry that pays attention to these things knows that you are one of the early Master Cicerones. The, and I, do I uh, remember correctly, you're the only Master Cicerone in, the, uh, in uh, Canada? Um, yes, I was the fifth Master Cicerone. Mm -hmm. I passed the exam in 2003. 12. Actually, two of us passed at the same time. And uh, it was interesting when the, because they didn't actually issue certificates until years and years after we had passed. And I remember when, when the certificates were being released, it, you know, the question was, which one of us would be number five and which one of us would be number six? Because we, you know, we passed at the same time. But <laughs> for some logistical reason, <laughs> I am the fifth. I was the first person outside of the U.S., to achieve that designation. So I'm very proud of that because certainly at the time, um, I cannot speak to the way things are now. Maybe you have more insights into this having taken your advanced recently, but at the time, certainly the exam was very US centric in terms of uh, beer, you know, beer samples, that we, you know, the assumptions that we knew all kinds of uh, American beer style, uh, not styles, sorry, obviously we knew the styles, but individual brands Mm -hmm. And so to pass that exam as someone who was not living in the U.S. was, uh, to me, I was I was quite proud. And, you know, I'd, of course, been to the U.S. and I had, uh, as a beer geek, sought out, you know, most of the relevant beers. But it's still, you know, a, a, a different challenge. So, yes, I was the, the fifth 
the first person outside of the U.S. to pass the test, and I'm still, as of today, the only uh, the only Canadian to have passed well, nine years later. So. Well, and you've been busy because you added Beer Sommelier uh, to your list. Uh, you're an author of the book Beerology, and uh, there's another book. Was that just a translation or a separate book entirely? Oh, yeah. So I helped with the French translation, but I was not able to assist with the German translation because I didn't actually know until it was released that uh, that it had taken place. But I'm really glad that I was able to participate in the translation. It's a it's a funny thing. Having worked in beer now for 14 years uh, in various capacities, I've become really aware that translating beer texts is a big challenge. Hmm. And for some reason, I think it's partially the fact that it's uh, very technical. You know, even a very basic beer book involves a lot of technical information and and that it's quite niche. It's an area that not a lot of people know about. Um, the translations can be pretty spectacularly bad. So Really? <laughs> so I'm, I'm really happy to have had the opportunity to review and help translate the French version because I'm... It's fantastic, and now my family can read my book. Well, and of course, that was your first baby, uh, you know, the book, right? And yes, now you have a new, real baby. But the the book, of course, came first, and it's the older sibling, I would imagine. Um, uh, so I I know your time is a little bit short, but there's a couple of. Uh, uh, bullet points I want to make sure I hit. And first of which is, um, will you share with us uh, a little bit about the state of the craft beer industry in in Canada, any any specific issues that are different from the rest of the world and, and U.S.? Um, and, and to kind of compound this question, please forgive me, one of the things I'm really curious about are, uh, do you foresee any specific Canadian styles or substyles uh, coming out in the future? Okay. I'm trying to remember all the questions. Uh, state of craft beer good, issues but, and um, styles. Starting with the, the state of things in Canada, I mean, it's the craft beer scene here is fantastic. Certainly in when I started a number of years ago, there were different areas that were specializing in, in different um, styles of beer. The West Coast was very much influenced by what was going on in the West Coast of the U.S., which makes sense. Um, there was a strong uh, Belgian influence in uh, in Quebec, and Ontario was uh, and is very uh, excellent place to get cat condition. This being said, at this stage, evened out. Everyone caught up with, and I would say the scene here comparable at this stage to the scene in the U.S. With regard to a specific style um i don't i don't necessarily see that happening and uh, i think that has to do with the fact that you know although we are further up you know, a lot of what we have here uh, in terms of availability of ingredients and and so on you know things that will result in distinct styles uh you know it's very similar to what's going on in the U.S., there was an attempt a number of years ago to try to establish some kind of—I um, believe it was a spruce beer—that uh, would be a native Canadian, you know, beer. But that uh, that didn't really go anywhere. 
Hmm. And that's fine to me. I mean, at this stage, most of the new quote unquote styles that are coming out, there's nothing really new about them. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, with the, the potential exception of the, the Italian grape ale, which is a very interesting phenomenon. Uh, and, you know, then the, the ch their chestnut beers, I guess. And then, you know, down in Latin America, there's some very interesting different fruit beers. Uh, happening with the, I think, you know, at this stage, you know, most of the combinations have been, have been tried. And uh, I'm seeing a lot of styles sort of pop up and fade very quickly. The notable exception being New England IPAs, which uh, appear to be here to stay. Agre agreed. Um, were you referring yes. to the and Katerina I Sour? With, um, I had some hope with Lars and uh, with Marius. And his uh, his Norwegian ale, his Norwegian farmhouse ales, and the discovery of Kvike, that that was going to lead to sort of a new interest, you know, again, not new styles, but a revival of this, you know, these very interesting styles from that area. And it appears everyone at this stage just wants to use Kvike yeast to make more ipas <laughs> yeah so, yeah it's like you guys uh, you, you guys missed it you, you had this opportunity to like bring back a historical style and you're you kind of missed the boat on that but yeah, i'm still I, i'm still hopeful though i'm still hopeful that there will be a swing back to malt sometime soon and that uh, the landscape won't be completely engulfed by ipas permanently because um, there are only so many IPA permutations that can occur. I think we're we're reaching saturation. And, you know, at, at some point, I'm hoping craft will go back to, you know, what it was meant to be, which was to bring us a huge and fun variety of, of flavors, as opposed to many variations on one flavor. Well, frankly, I'm I'm hoping that, like everything else, it just goes through these these wonderful meta cycles, uh, where you know um, you know like like a, a good lager has never really quite gone away, but it's just kind of come in and out of vogue. Um, you know, IPAs have proliferated, but you know maybe someday we'll you know we'll you rediscover you know uh, British milds and British bitters and and some other stuff that have just kind of gone by the wayside in the in the last uh, 10, 15 years or so. Um, you know, again, yeah, you know, it's it's really sad and it's interesting you mentioned English milds and English bitter bitters because apart from the fact that uh, um, malt forward styles seem to be very unpopular uh english styles i don't know if you were there when we talked about it in the in our check-ins for the course but english styles also say they don't seem to well they do on one hand seem to be less popular but on on the other hand and this is happening across styles but it's more more blatant in english styles is everything is creeping towards becoming a pale ale Oh, yeah. You know, all of the, uh, sorry, an American style pale ale. So, yes. you know, I'm seeing a lot of the esters draw, you know, completely avoided in making English styles, both here and in a number of breweries in the UK. I was refreshed to, to, to learn from colleagues in the UK that there are some people still holding down that, uh, that fort. But, you know, I'm seeing the neutral fermentations and an increased use in American hops and you know that's you know saisons are going that way and all kinds of different it's just everything seems to be in this gravitational force pulling towards becoming an american pale ale and that's 
you know, that's not what craft beer was supposed to be about. So. And do you think that is uh, because of uh, the American brewers have some semblance of uh, leadership amongst the craft beer boom that's, you know, kind of trickling out to the rest of the world? And so everyone wants to now brew American styles? I think it's tricky. There's a number of different factors involved. Uh, certainly, you know, the excitement of American hops. I mean, I, I still vividly remember the first time I tasted a beer that had American hops in it. You know, I remember that moment. Um, and so obviously that moment for me came a lot sooner than in some other parts in the world because I'm, you know, close by. And so it's, you know, just like in the U.S., there's a huge interest in, you know, Belgian brewing techniques and people are installing, you know, furters and people are installing cool ships and all that sort of thing. It makes sense that in other parts of the world, there would be a huge excitement towards these American hops because they do uh, taste delicious. <laughs> so I think that's that's one piece of it. Um, the other in terms of the, that doesn't explain the the esters, though, and. The only thing I can think of, this was maybe about 10 years ago. There was a huge, I don't know what inspired it or, you know, where it came from, but this huge anti-diacetyl sentiment that even like a touch of diacetyl in any beer was absolutely disgusting and unacceptable. And it was around that time that I saw the use of a lot of traditional English style, English yeasts sort of wane and disappear. And so, I don't know, it's just an observation. It could be a coincidence. Uh, you know, I really don't see a reason why esters should disappear. But, you know... Um, also, uh, you know, I am, I am not a professional brewer. I'm not sure if there might be, it might be faster to brew. Is it faster? No, it's not. Cause Ringwood is super fast. Well, so, yeah. And, and yeah, it, it takes it, and it takes a little bit, uh, granted, it takes a little bit longer for the yeast to scrub out that diacetyl. Right. And so, mm -hmm. so if they're just trying to brew with speed, then that's, then maybe we need to grab that Kvike yeast because, you know, we can, we can ferment in, in minutes. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it's just, interesting, just, you know, but there's definitely an increased sameness that's been slowly but surely happening. And this is um, a, a, one of the, you know, one of the things that I that I do regularly, not with COVID, sadly, um, but one of the things that I do regularly is judge in beer competitions. And that's really where I'm seeing this creep where suddenly everything has American hops the, the yeast is starting to take a, you know, yeast character is taking a backseat with the exception of Belgian beers where yeast character is dialed up to 11. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, who knows where it'll all go. As long as the beers continue to be delicious, I think we'll be okay. I, you know, I, I agree with that sentiment. Um, I, I just hope that there will be some, and it sounds like you're the same sound mind and body. I just hope there will be enough of those old school beers that inspired this whole thing to begin with. Uh, for us to just kind of go back and reminisce. I, I love that uh, brewers are trying to push the envelope and f find new ways and new sub-styles and, and find a new way in the world. Uh, but it's kind of nice to go back and listen to classics. I mean, you know, every once in a while, you got to listen to Zeppelin. You can't just listen to all the new stuff all the time, right? Yeah. And that's really, that's on drinkers. So it's yeah. going to be up to uh, 
people need to to drink those beers because they are for now still definitely still around. Yeah. Um, so well, yeah, I certainly go out of my way to uh, enjoy them as much as possible. Awesome. Um, I, I do want to get into what you do. I mean, so uh, you're an author. You have the uh, podcast called Hot Plate. Uh, you, you're also a consultant. Um, you, you do a, a lot of different things in the industry, and it's not uh, just about beer. Uh, you do a lot of stuff with food as well, uh, from from what I've seen. What is the the real focus of your work with all of these various projects? Human beings have used the power of storytelling for millennia. We use stories to educate, motivate, and inspire others to lead better lives. If you're a business in the beer industry, we can use the power of story to better serve your customers. At Mountain Sea Media, I help you tell your story and keep your brand on top of mind. Mountain Sea Media is your resource for engaging multimedia beer content. Contact me at jeremy at mountainseamedia.com to discuss your next project. After all, it's your story. I'll help you tell it. Well, my goal with Beerology has always been to push the industry forward, to be a driving force in the industry. And so my approach has always been to think, you know, what's missing here that I can contribute to that plays to my strengths. So in the early days with Beerology, uh, you know, a huge piece of my work was guided tastings. Because in those early days, a lot of people had, you know, never tried craft beer before and brewers were so busy brewing. Um, you know, when I when I chatted with them, they said, Oh, it would be really great if someone was just out there explaining these flavors to people. So because, you know, if you're a lager drinker, and you suddenly pick up a Flanders Red, you're going to be very confused. <laughs> Unless, or a Berliner Weiss, someone yeah. needs to explain that to you. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, uh, a few years later, the industry was really picking up some steam, and I became aware that there were no uh, off-flavor trainings uh, available to brewers in, uh, in, in Canada, certainly. And so I put together a, an off-flavor training class, also because... I don't know about you, but it, they're super fun. <laughs> I love doing off liberty. Oh, totally. Uh, so I put together put together that, and then uh, you know all of that work sort of culminated in my book, which I know you're familiar with, and that's uh, it was really my way to say, okay, here is you know everything I've learned about how you know beginners see beer and how to introduce beer to people who are curious about it, and so they can appreciate it even more. And, uh, and then from there, I started moving on to doing more, you know, staff trainings and consulting. And as of, um, as of 2018, so after 10 years with Beerology, I focused entirely on consulting. And so now what I do is mostly create training programs like my new course right except this one i did for myself the mastering beer and food pairing brought to yeah. my beerology is the the first one that i've created for myself and i'm very very proud of it as and, and, and uh, just just a quick plug as well you should be I, I i took the first offering of it it's fantastic we'll talk about it in a minute nice um and then from there there's always been a a, a piece of me that believes that again, to drive the industry forward, it needs to be part of a larger conversation. And this is something that I'm not seeing enough of is, you know, beer in the context of broader, broader food and hospitality events. So 
I've always gone out of my way. We have a huge international food symposium here in Toronto called Terroir. And, you know, I was in the early days, the only person there representing beer. Now there's a, a bigger beer presence. Um, and I've always tried to find ways to make beer part of the, a broader conversation. So that's that's how part of how Hot Plate was born. It's me and a chef, and we talk about uh, hospitality in general. But of course, I bring a bit of a beer slant to it, and she brings a bit of a food slant to it. And uh, right now, the, the season is all about the effects of COVID on each aspect of our industry. So of course, we cover beer and food. Um, but then we also get into agriculture and uh, meatpacking. It's, uh, it's, it's been a really interesting adventure. And I guess the, the one super fun beer thing that I did there, uh, sadly, I, after when I became pregnant, we had to stop doing them, but was uh, a segment called Blind Beer Date, where we would not consult with each other. I would bring in a beer and she would bring in a food and we would taste them together and see what happened. And uh, that was, it's a super fun segment and one that I'm hoping we can revive because, uh, or that I can revisit in another context because, you know, planning a pairing is one thing, but, you know, just putting two random things together and trying to anticipate what the interaction will be and then tasting it is, uh, it's, a, it's an adventure. That sounds like it would be particularly fun for you to have uh, guests come on and share that experience with you. I, I'm just saying, a little, little plug. Um, <laughs> You know, you, you, you were talking about, um, you know, your book kind of helped people get into the business. And now the work you're doing seems to kind of help continue that education. And it kind of painted a picture for me that um, for the longest time within craft beer specifically, that the knowledge was kind of compressed. There were those who had it and those who didn't. Um, and it seems like these days that that compression is starting to uh, spread out. But we have to remember that there are and will always be those people who are entering the service industry, the beer industry for the first time, and who don't know anything about beer but want to learn, need to learn. And so they have to begin their journey just like you did and I did. But meanwhile, we have people who who have gotten quite savvy. We have consumers who have gotten quite savvy, and they want to continue on and learning more and more and more and more. And so you kind of have to honor the beginner and the intermediate and the advanced knowledge individual uh, kind of at the same time. Is is that is that a core focus of your work to kind of kind of help that spread out? For sure. And it's something that I've become used to right from my early days, because as I mentioned, you know, when I started Beerology, a lot of what I was doing was guided tastings and my guided tastings would usually be composed, you know, the attendees would be uh, mostly people who were new to beer. And then I'd always have two or three really passionate beer people uh, in the group. So the challenge was always, you know, how do I make sure that they also walk away having learned something mm. um, without losing the beginners uh, in the crowd. So that, I think, was also a big challenge that I posed for myself in creating this new course, Mastering Beer and Food Pairing, brought yeah. to you by Beerology. I wanted it, I I didn't want to start it right at a beginner level. Um, when I looked around to see what was out there, first of all, there's not a lot out there in terms of pair, resource to learn how to pair with beer with food. There's a lot of, you know, lists of rules and guidelines, but mm -hmm. there's nothing really out there that says like, 
here is how you do it. Step here's step one, step two, step three, how you get from, you know, just having the beer or just having the food to getting to the pairing. And then of course, as you know, I have some advanced techniques in there yeah. as well. Yeah. Um well I remember so, uh, I, and, I remember yeah. emailing you wondering if it would be appropriate for me to sign up. You know, I, I just successfully passed my advanced Cicerone. Um I've I've worked in around food for a long time. So I felt comfortable, especially with the basics of pairing. And so I emailed you. It's like, well, who, who is this for? And is this appropriate? And, and, uh, and your response, um, uh, basically culminated in my signing up for the class anyway. And I'm so glad because it, it's not for the beginner. It's for someone who has that, uh, basic understanding, but there were some, you dove into more detail and and kind of provided uh, a a structure and a framework to think about um, how you put the stuff together in a more interesting way, and um, I, I want to unpack that with you in just a minute. Um, uh, but you know, before we get too far out on this uh, ledge that we're going to continue on just a minute, this all this work you're doing in this food uh, and beer pairing class. Uh, how do people take this knowledge that you're putting out into the world and apply it to where they are in the beer industry, whether they're a server, bartender, distributor, brewer, uh, or someone, you know, with some uh, beer podcast? How how do we apply this stuff? <laughs> uh, well, there are many tasty segments you could create with your podcast, that's for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I'm, I really, when I conceived of this course... As I mentioned earlier, I was looking to see what was out there, and I noticed that a lot of beer and food pairing courses, that 90% of the course is, and this is what beer is, and here is styles, and here are flavors. And I thought, okay, uh, I really wanted to focus on the how-to. So I, I took a step back, I thought, who is my target audience? And it's definitely you know, the list of people that you just went through so anyone who works in hospitality who works with beer whether it's you know the general manager at a busy uh pub that serves beer and food or you know a sommelier who's in a nice restaurant and has brought in a couple of interesting beers uh for you know so that they have a, a an array of flavors available to them you know craft beer is now and you know an a flavorful beer in general uh is much more present in a wider range of establishments than it was before. It used to be that craft beer was only available in craft beer bars where only beer geeks worked. And so, uh, you know, um, at this stage, I really wanted to create a tool for all of those people that I mentioned earlier so that they can add beer and food pairing to their repertoire because, I mean, it, it creates a great experience for the customer. There are, you know, Pairing beer with food is something that's been around for centuries, but there are still a lot of people who have never experienced it. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you've done any beer, public beer and food pairings. Yes, you have. You yeah. have. We have discussed yeah. it. I mean, you know, that moment where you just blow someone's mind. Oh, I love because that. Because that beer pairs so well with it, you know? Uh, so for someone who works, and you know, in hospitality, imagine having the opportunity to do that daily. I mean, that's going to you know, increase sales, it's going to increase tips, it's going to make everyone happy. Um, there's just, it's, it's really, I think, a super useful tool. And so what I wanted to do with this course was to make it uh, accessible. 
So as long as you know your beer styles you're, you're, and you're comfortable, you know, tasting a beer and saying, oh, well, this one has a hint of chocolate and this one, oh, this one has grapefruit or, you know, what it's a, you're comfortable describing what you're tasting. This course will, will get you, you know, where you need to go. And there's the beginner section, as you know, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and then there's a more advanced section. So I think different people will get different things out of it. I was really, really happy to hear not only from you, but from some other more advanced people in the course that they got a lot out of it. And I'm looking forward to hearing from more of the, uh, the beginners in the class, but so far I've had uh, only enthusiastic responses and, you know, that's not, that's not easy to do to create a course that, that encompasses all of those levels, but you know, once once registered people have access for a full year so it really gives you the time to you know if you're just a beginner go through the beginner section and then go to your job wherever it is that you're going to be practicing and do some pairing before you, you yeah. dive into yeah events. and i'm i'm looking forward to kind of taking some of these these uh some of these specific concepts and 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 really thinking about them and thinking about my experience um but it, it kind of to take what we're about to talk about in a minute um, to take this and apply it to me. It's like, you know, there there are restaurants. You know, if they're serving French fries, for example, there are restaurants that have that just get the the bags of frozen French fries. They throw them in the fryer. They serve them, and okay, we got fries. Then there are those restaurants who take the potato and they cut the potato. They they brine the potato overnight to really draw out the moisture and 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 really um, you know. Uh, spice them up really nicely and then throw them in the microwave, you know, <laughs> because yeah. they, they, they have the tools, they just aren't executing properly. And then there's who have the potato, they have the brine, they have the spices and they deep fry it and it comes out and these are the best fries you've ever had. To me, these are, these are like three different versions of restaurants that have great beer at their fingertips. There are those that just, they stick with the usual suspects. There are those who have some great beer, but don't know what to do with it. And then there are those who are just killing it. Um, uh, my the work I'm doing sounds like the work you're doing is trying to help everyone get to that third thing where you use these tools and you do better, you make more money, everyone's happier, you have a an army of guests and customers who love what you do and they will tell everyone about it. Um, and it's just because you have people who know what they're talking about and people who execute on something better. Is that a fair summation? Yeah, absolutely. Although I would add, you know, even if you're just in a, an establishment that uh, uses pre-frozen uh, fries and just chucks them in the fryer, I mean, it's a, it's still great to be able to say to someone, oh, hey, you're moving on to a burger now. Do you want to try this other beer? Because it's going to do something really spectacular. Yep. You know, there's still that opportunity there to, to do that pairing and to create that uh, amazing experience. And uh you know, fingers crossed, revive malt forward beers. <laughs> I know, right? I'm with you. I, I'm, I'm definitely a malt head. I, I appreciate hops, but I'm a malt head myself. Um, so, uh, so your course, um, uh, let's, let's talk, um, you know, a little bit about your course. Who is it for and what is it that they're going to learn? So the course is really for anyone who wants to learn how to pair beer with food but I would say more specifically for people who uh, work around beer and would like to, you know, find ways to make it more exciting and to, you know, get, you know, to use that beer to its full potential because you can sell that beer based on its flavor profile or you can sell that beer based on its flavor profile as well as its food pairing potential, which is, um, I think, something... I'm curious to see, but I think it's going to be something that, that people get more and more into. To me, it's the next 
as I mentioned earlier, you know, I was, I'm always looking forward and trying to think how can I move things forward. And I feel like step one was getting a great selection of beers in a wide range of establishments. And I think we can, I don't know about in the US, but in Canada, we can check that for sure. That's been done. And to me, the next step is now that it's in there, let's use it to its full potential. Yeah. So that's really what it's about. So, uh, and, and, uh, well, we, we, we did kind of brush through that as well prior to, to your answer, but, um, what, what kind of prerequisites would you recommend someone has before they sign up for your course? Yeah, that's a, it's a very important point because this course really is just about pairing beer with food. So, um, it is assumed that anyone taking the course is familiar with beer styles you know, do you know the difference between uh, an IPA and uh, an American Amber, for example? You know, do you know what an alt beer is? Because I'm just going to mention these beers and assume that you know what they are. So um, if you're not quite there yet, there are a number of courses that can be taken to brush up. Um, and of course, you can always, I guess, press pause on the video and go, go look it up <laughs> if you want. Um, but you won't get the same thing out of it. And then the other thing is a, there has to be a certain comfort level tasting and describing beer because, you know, this course is online. So I am not, unfortunately, there with you. And uh, as I'm sure you noticed, Jeremy, that I designed the course so that anyone anywhere can take it. So you go yeah. through the course, which whichever beers are available to you in your area. And so therefore, I, I really rely on you knowing your palate. And if I ask you, you know, determine how sweet this beer is, uh, you know, as a participant in the course, do you just need to have that comfort level to, to think like, okay, yeah, I know this is a very sweet beer, or I know this is just, this beer is not sweet at all. Or, you know, if I say name the dominant note, you yeah. need to be comfortable on your own because, again, I'm not there um, they, to say, oh, well, the, definitely this is a stout. The main note is dark chocolate or, is, you know, an IPA. The main note I'm getting here is uh, mango or passion fruit or grapefruit or whatever happens to be the sure. dominant note in here. Well, I, I think so those are the two things. I think um, just just for a sake of just kind of um, kind of giving my 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 little two cents on on that um, for anyone listening who wants to take your course if they're kind of on the fence I think um, uh, if I were to take your course right after I passed certified Cicerone I think um, I would have been able to keep up. Um, it, but it definitely would have been a challenge. Uh, it would have been an amazing challenge. It would have been fantastic. Um, but it would have been a bit more of a challenge. Now that I've passed advanced Cicerone, um, I, I was definitely able to keep up. I felt like uh, there were moments when I was able to contribute. Um, but most importantly, there were some things that um, were better clarified uh, for me. Um, there were things that uh, uh, I'd say... Um, there, there were aspects of it that uh, helped kind of clarify my process, helped me, uh, instead of just going with my gut feeling um, on whether a pairing would work, it gave me, a, like I mentioned before, that structure, that framework to, to kind of analyze uh, in, in a more um, objective way whether this makes sense or not. And, and that was a, a big take-home uh, for me personally. But I, I would use that to kind of gauge... Uh, for anyone listening, if you want to take the class, you know, maybe that will help kind of gauge whether you're up for the class or not. Yeah, and I did want to clarify for our listeners that this is uh, an online course. It's designed to be entirely self-guided. So you just sign up, 
and you take it. Uh, of course, I'm always available via email or, or Twitter if you have questions. I, you can always reach out to me, but it is designed to be self-guided. And what Jeremy and I are talking about right now is the fact that uh, after launching the course, I put together what's called a cohort. So what I did is we all, a group of us went through the course together. We did one module a week. And at the end of each week, we checked in. People had the opportunity to ask questions. We, you know, had uh, various activities together. So uh, the cohort-based model is something that I do hope to offer again. I'm not exactly sure when that will happen. So if you're, you know, you're hearing Jeremy and I talk, refer to, you know, the group and different people and the club, that's, that's, what, um, that's what that is. And uh, Jeremy, I think you'll be interested to know that the majority of the people in the group are between certified beer server and certified Cicerone. And um, I've been getting great feedback awesome. from them as well. Awesome. So I think, you know, the, the challenge here and that is something that I have to, this is why I'm hesitating with the cohorts and I need to, when I do things, I like to ponder and try, especially in a teaching scenario, I, I try to, you know, really maximize what each person will get out of it. And I do agree with you that for someone who is maybe at a more beginner level, doing one module a week is pretty intense. Yes. You know, uh, if someone's just gone through their preparing for their certified Cicerone, I would recommend, you know, probably doing the first three modules in the course of a month and then taking some time to practice. And I would imagine that that would probably be uh, enough information to comfortably get through the certified Cicerone exam and then get into maybe looking at advanced techniques after you've had a little time to practice. So that that's the point of difference there. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, just for uh, like a little teaser trailer uh, of your course coming up, um, can can you give us a just a, a little synopsis of a few of some of these more advanced uh, 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 modules or techniques that you uh, shared? Um, for example, uh, sh share with us uh, is a is a term I, I've I've encountered this phenomenon before, um, but I haven't thought about it as deeply until I took your class. But I've never heard this word until I took your class. Chemisthesis. What exactly is yeah. chemisthesis? So that's that's actually in the in the beginner module that I that I talk about that. And uh, so chemisthesis, they're they're types of mouthfeel sensations. And specifically, their mouthfeel sensations where um, a, a specific flavor or taste uh, will trigger uh, receptors that are usually used to identifying pain. So some examples would be, you know, if you have if you taste something minty. So chemesthesis, first of all, is not relegated only to taste, but because we're talking about chemesthesis within the context of a beer and food pairing course, I'm going to stick to the chemesthesis reactions that happen in our mouth. Um, so so, so you, if you eat mint, sometimes you'll get a really cooling sensation, right? Like, mm -hmm. like your mouth is cold, but the temperature of your mouth hasn't actually changed, right? Uh, another maybe more beer-specific example would be astringency, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes you'll, you'll have a beer and you'll get an astringent sensation. It feels like it's drying out your mouth, but there, it's actually a liquid that's in your mouth, yeah. right? So it's this... Uh, you know, odd crossing of wires. And as I was, you know, my journey in putting together this course has really been to take it because at this stage in, you know, in my journey, pairing beer with food is 
pretty much instinctive and I've assimilated a number of these different rules and guidelines that are out there and use them in a way that works well for me. And so my journey has been taking a step back and thinking about, okay, how am I doing this? What is the, what are the actual steps? What is the thought process? Yeah. Right. Um, cause I really think that's the big value that this course brings is that, that breakdown. I don't know if you would agree. Well, I, um, I, I thought it was I thought it was really nice because having that breakdown made me think about how can I use those interactions to my advantage. How can I yeah. how can I plan that? I mean, now we're we're getting into the weeds. We're talking about some more advanced stuff. But if if I'm going to, um, you know, how can I? Well, it got me thinking about specifically that um, that uh, uh, Belgian triple from uh, Trey Fontaine with a eucalyptus and and just with the interaction that that has, like, how would I pair that and what order would I pair that? Because it's a very different triple with a very different um, experience with that. And, and so it kind of got me thinking even deeper about um, uh, kind of putting the the pieces, the puzzle pieces together to create an incredible experience. Um and, and, and oh, I like your I like the analogy of the puzzle pieces. That's oh. a that's a great analogy. Well, it's just it's like how can we? One of the things I'm fascinated with is to I tell people think about that incredible night of food and company and that you've had that you'll never forget. When you when you play your highlight reel, this stands out at the top. How can we take that experience, deconstruct it, take those pieces, and put them back together at will uh, for mm-hmm. for our guests? To me, that that's just that that is the goal. That is the the purpose of all of this. And your course kind of helped me learn how I can do that even better. Nice. Uh, so back to Keemsthesis. So you know, as I was doing this breakdown, um, once I was able to identify what these reactions are, a lot of the because you know, what I was looking at was a bunch of different rules and guidelines and things I do. And like, how do I make sense of all this and turn it into something that is coherent instead of just a huge list of things. And uh, once I started thinking about Keemsthesis, you know, a lot of content fell into place for me. So for example, like, why do we always have to talk about spicy heat? You know, when we're talking about taste interactions, when spicy heat is not a taste. Mm-hmm. You know, so from there, I started finding patterns. And as you know, I, you know, I was able to include that yeah. in the course. So that's, that's why there's that emphasis on the Keemsthesis. So, and so, then, you know, the other advanced technique that I, uh, that I, uh, some other advanced techniques that I talk about are uh, adding tension, um, as well as touching on pairing dynamics, which is something that I'm very excited about, because I think it's something new that I'm bringing to the table. Yeah, th- those were next on my list. Um, but uh, before, before you dive in there, uh, back to uh, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. I'm I'm saying chemisthesis. You're saying how? What's the what's chemisthesis. the right? Chemisthesis. Okay. Chemisthesis. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm goofing that up. But then again, I'm not trilingual. Um, there's so, a, there's a lot of letters in there. Yeah. So so the word you just said does that explain the interaction of like having just brushed your teeth and immediately putting orange juice in your mouth? Is that that same interaction, or is that something else entirely? That's that's interesting. I would know. I would imagine chemesthesis plays a role there because what you're getting from the toothpaste most of the time is very something very minty. Mm-hmm. And I know that my toothpaste is not super minty and therefore I don't end up having that same reaction. So that's a uh, that I mean uh it would take some research 
to to get to the bottom of it but it's it's i would say definitely a huge piece interesting of that, well there's a, there's a new module for your class then i guess with your sorry <laughs> i was to say there's a new module for your class now the interaction of orange <laughs> juice and toothpaste um but uh, you and brought beer. The, and beer yes um <laughs> uh, or new england ipa a very orangey version um, but you brought up flavor tension and flavor dynamics, and, and I want to be um, considerate of your time. I've got some closing questions I want to go through with you. So will you just kind of tell us briefly, what is flavor tension and, and flavor dynamics? I mean, because right, to, so to, to me, these are these are terms that we would use in music, tension and dynamics. That's very interesting that you should point that out, because I have a degree in music. Oh, um, perfect. And... Uh, but I think there's a parallel to be drawn between music and uh, and beer, and certainly, you know, when when I talk about off flavors, I often, you know, relate it to music. And when you think about like an off note, yeah. because the thing about off flavors, some of them are always bad, but some off flavors in the right context are appropriate and good. And so, uh, a great parallel there is, you know, some notes are fantastic but if you play them in the wrong place then it becomes an off note so that anyway yeah uh, i'm going on a tangent tension um so adding tension this is in the advanced techniques and it was something that i really really wanted to make sure to include because i find that uh certainly with beginners in pairing beer with food and this is understandable and absolutely okay and for sure the way to go uh, there's a lot of focus on you know, sameness and matching and making things sure things mesh. And that is for sure the first step you want, you want the beer and the food to go well together. But um, often what I see is then that's, that's where it ends. And, you know, I feel like adding a little, uh, I think Elena <laughs> in our course calls it a little pop, you know, just yeah. a little something to keep you on your toes uh, is, is very important because it adds uh a bit of dimension to the pairing it makes it more interesting so the idea really is to just introduce a little tension a little something that uh again i'm with i'm going to use a, a music term it just causes a slight dissonance it's not like a big clash it's yeah. not going to wreck the pairing but yeah. just, just a little something it's that, like a that blues pops. passing note that that just like ooh, what, what was that yeah yeah and uh i it's something that i do in absolutely all my pairings and so I wanted to make sure to include it as a as a technique here to encourage people to, you know, you you've got the pairing. It's 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 good. Everything's matching. It's going to taste great. Now, why don't you just challenge yourself and add a little a little something that's going to make it pop and that's going to catch people off guard. And so, how is that different from contrast? It 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 is establishing a contrast. I think you know in the. Uh, when we talk about beer and food pairing, when we talk about contrast, we're talking about a bigger piece of the puzzle. And certainly in the in the tension section, I do talk about, you know, constructing a contrast pairing. So the difference would be, you know, and this is semantics, but certainly in a beer and food pairing context, when we talk about contrast, we're usually talking about that being the main dynamic of the pairing. And when I'm talking about adding tension, I'm talking about a pairing where uh, it's mostly a, co a complement pairing. And then there's just that little piece of tension. And so when during this course, the way that I was uh, thinking about this is, um, you know, like, let's take a dessert. So we have a dark roasty stout with a chocolate cake. And so to me, it seems like the contrast would be roast and sweet chocolate. Um, but that 
talking about that tension piece, I think you brought up, well, now we're going to throw some raspberry in there or maybe a little bit of like lemon um, to kind of like, okay, we're expecting the roast. We're expecting We're expecting the coffee roast. We're expecting the chocolate. But wait, what was that? Um, that there was a, like a little flavor that was just unexpected. Um, to me, that that's, that's where I, that's how I understand fl- uh, flavor tension. Yeah, for sure. Because, you know, the roast does, it is providing, uh, you know, a, a, a bitterness, but it's not in contrast necessarily because the chocolate is based on cocoa, right? Yeah. So that's still something that is, you know, a bridge Yeah. in my mind. Okay. Um, and well, that's a very accurate. Yes, what you what you described is quite accurate. Okay, good. I, I got the question right. Excellent. You got it. <laughs> I got it. I'm, I might pass the class after all. Um, uh, and real briefly, uh, talk to us about flavor dynamics because we mentioned it. We need to we need to touch on it. Yeah, it's just something that um, I haven't seen anyone else talk about. Have you? Uh, and, and, you know, in the terms of flavor, I've never heard anyone talk about it, but I've, because of the way that I think about, uh, story, the way that I think about, um, music, I, I think about, uh, the dynamics of kind of like build a crescendo, then pull it back and then drive it home. Um, you know, if trying to create an experience that, uh, takes people on a flavor journey. So, so when you brought up this term flavor dynamics, I just like snapped my fingers and said, aha, that, that's, that's what I've been thinking of. Yeah. So this is something that, um, you know, in my years of conducting various beer and food pairing events, I, you know, was very much interested in trying to untangle, you know, which pairings are universally very enjoyed. And when there's two or three people in the crowd that don't like a pairing, what's going on there? Because, I, I firmly believe that the whole notion of, well, everyone's palate is different, so all you can do is put two things together that you think taste great, and, you know, if other people don't agree, well, that's just palates. Uh, I feel like that's a bit of a cop-out, and I feel like there's a lot of ways to mitigate that and to make sure that, you know, maximum number of people are going to enjoy that pairing because it is a good pairing. It's not just two things that you like to eat together, yeah. that's, you know, um, as, you know, as as per the various steps in my course, it's been constructed in a very specific way. And so what I noticed is that there was a specific set of pairings that some people did not enjoy as much. And if I, when I took a step back, it was not about necessarily the individual flavors. It was not necessarily about um, the, the beers in question or something about the food. But what it was, was how the interplay between the beer and the food. And I began to notice that sometimes when you pair a beer and a food together, it's just the flavors just meld seamlessly. Um, I would argue in those cases, you need to add a little tension, but <laughs> if you don't, you just have this melt, regardless, you have this, the main interaction is a meld. And then there are other times when you put a beer and food together and they still taste great together but it's a much more dynamic interplay of flavors in your mouth so you get like a you know a peak of the the taste of the food and then maybe you'll get a bit of the malt character in the beer and then you get another piece of the food flavor coming out and then you get the bitterness but it's really this dynamic interplay what i call a dance because it feels like the two are dancing Mm -hmm. in your mouth um and i realized that those pairings were the ones that i liked best but those were often the pairings that were most controversial. And it makes sense, right? It's a much more challenging dynamic 
to have going on in your mouth. And so someone who had done a, tasted a lot of beer and foods together will find that more stimulating and someone who hasn't might find that a little bit more challenging. So I, uh, so I, for many years parsed out, you know, when I was putting together pairings, took a moment to think about, okay, is this a meld or is this a dance and who is my audience and you know, how do I want to play this? And then one day I came across that third pairing dynamic, the elusive third flavor <laughs> and, uh, it has changed my life and it's a, it's a constant search. I think you, you managed to find one even I... in the few in the few weeks that we were doing the course. Yeah. Right? And of course I've, I've been very aware of the third flavor ever since I started watching the movie Ratatouille with my daughter, who's now 13, but we've been watching it for at least 10 years, if not longer. So the whole, uh, I call it the zing boom pow effect. You got something that goes zing and the other thing goes uh, boom and together they create a pow. And, and so I, I've been thinking about that. And so when you mentioned that third flavor, it's like, Oh yeah, I, I, I've, I've encountered that before. And it just so happened that I tasted a, um, a juicy IPA and a piece of uh, goat manchego cheese with um, with uh, dried ro rosemary on the rind, and together the flavor kind of created this eucalyptus, uh, a sweet eucalyptus flavor. Um, that you know, I, I mean, I, I can imagine how that would go together, but it was it, there was no eucalyptus anywhere near me, so it, it was it was kind of an int interesting experience. It's so cool when that third flavor that's neither in yeah. the beer or the food just pops out. And yeah, you can deconstruct, you can think back and then probably this interaction and that interaction that's causing it, but you still get that flavor clear as day. And it's, yeah. it's such a rewarding and satisfying experience when it happens. Yeah, because you just, you just created magic. Pretty much. Uh, yep. Um, so I, <laughs> uh, you've got. I know you've got uh, to go soon. I've just got some finishing questions for you. Um, uh, so today I'm going to wave my magic mash paddle, and you are going to become the queen of the beer world for a day. What's the first thing you're going to change? The queen of the beer world for a day. Yes. What is the first thing I am going to change? The selection. I want to see more variety. Uh, I want to walk into bars and not see five IPAs and one stout. I was going to say, are we talking about beers or brewers? Uh, I think that's, Sorry, that was a little loaded. Uh, there's, Sorry. There's, there's, there's steady progress in that area. There's yes. steady progress in that area. I was thinking of the, the world of beer flavors. The world of beer flavors. Yeah. Um, awesome. Uh, now... Uh, at the end of today, you get to uh, retire the crown, and tomorrow uh, you are going uh, to get on one of these uh, uh, billionaire's rockets and head to Mars because you're going to be the uh, Canadian ambassador to uh, the new Mars colony and start establishing uh, a beer industry there. Uh, but before you leave, you get to choose your last meal, your last beer. What's it going to be? Oh, I'm I'm gonna I'm not gonna answer that one. Oh God. <laughs> no. Oh, that that's a cop out. I, I can tell you my my last meal will be a spectacular bowl of pasta. Excellent. And uh, probably with some uh, prosciutto in there, something creamy. Uh, probably throw in some vegetables. Uh, and um, what would I have for dessert? I'm going through a, a butter tart phase right now i don't oh, know okay. you don't have butter tarts down there do you uh i'm not familiar with them yeah it's a very canadian dessert it's basically like a, a tiny little pie 
and the the filling is basically brown sugar and cream. Oh wow, nice! It's uh, it's quite delicious. So I'll probably have that for dessert with uh, uh, a nice bourbon that's on the sweeter side. But uh, in terms of my my beer, I'm um, actually I guess I could probably pick a beer that would go with that pasta. I'll do that. I just don't like to ever single out a favorite beer. So with that pasta, I would likely have. Um, and I think I would have an amber lager, an amber lager. Fair enough. And, very nice. and if I had or to answer you, Munich Dunkel, Munich Dunkel. Oh, perfect. Yes? If I had to answer that question, I'd probably set up, okay, this is what I'm having for breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert. Cause I can't, I can't answer that question and, and I'm the one asking it. <laughs> so it would just the be, answer a, is pasta. it'd just be a day of flavor <laughs> debauchery. Um, uh, so the, the next, uh, Big question is, uh, with all of your experiences, uh, why does good beer matter? Good beer matters because anything good matters, right? I believe that in every aspect of our lives, we can, you know, be generic or we can strive for, for the best absolute flavor sensation that we can get as per your French fry, uh, description earlier, yeah. right? Uh, and I think it's certainly brought a lot of joy to my life and especially, you know, the flavor variety that is out there in beer is just such a wonderful thing to explore. You know, why limit yourself when there's, when there's so much more out there? Uh, that's fantastic and absolutely agreed. Uh, a couple easy ones. Uh, if anyone listening wants to connect with you at Beerology, the course, the book, where can they go to learn more? Uh, well, I'm, uh, uh, I've managed to be Beerology everywhere. So I'm, uh, Beerology.ca is my website, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, anywhere you look, it's, uh, Beerology. And, um, I'm also on LinkedIn. And of course, my course is called Mastering Beer and Food Pairing, brought to you by Beerology. So you can find that either by finding me or by looking for it separately. And that's, uh, on a website called Thinkific. Awesome. Uh, and last thing, do you have any calls to action, final words of wisdom to anyone listening? Yeah, I would say the next time you have a beer, you might do this already, but, you know, in a more concerted fashion, take a moment to, to really appreciate that first sip. I find sometimes I don't I get to like halfway through and I think, wait a sec, this is delicious. And I think, you know, we're living in some pretty... Uh, intense times right now and it's it's great to enjoy the small pleasures and a beer certainly is that i appreciate that immensely uh i, I take that personally as well i've been so busy after becoming such a beer nerd that i've i've noticed that i'm not paying attention to the flavors anymore like i was so i need to rem remember that as well but um yeah no, don't take you don't need to take notes just <laughs> no, enjoy that first no. sip <laughs> just enjoy it <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you so much for using a fantastic microphone. Uh, thank you for your time, your knowledge, the work that you do. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, taking that course. It's been a pleasure uh, talking to you on this podcast. I, I can't wait to do it again sometime. Fantastic. Well, you have a lovely rest of your day. Thank you. You too. I believe those who have spent years acquiring beer education have a duty to pass it on to the next generation of beer industry leaders. To that end, check out the resources found at beerology.ca as well as here at goodbeermatters.net. We need you to lead us into a better beer-filled future.
In the next episode, we hang out with a couple leaders in their field and learn a thing or two about the incredibly diverse world of craft malt. Good Beer Matters is a show about great beer, great friends, and the experiences we create together. But it's also about better beer education so you can level up your game. So if you're a beer and food professional or even a beer enthusiast, then please subscribe to Good Beer Matters podcast and go to goodbeermatters.net for more resources and next steps. After that, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let the world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Cheers.